had intended to serve his wife Anne breakfast in bed, but he'd gotten distracted and she'd gotten up, and so he said, oh, Anne, Anne, because he wanted to talk about it in the sermon. So he said, oh, Anne, Anne, go back to bed. So she, she climbed back into bed. I don't know if she was fully dressed or not, and he brought her a banana in a bowl. And uh, so that's what he talked about, how he had served his wife that morning on Mother's Day. Well, I'm going to do kind of the same thing to our moms here today. I'm going to sort of serve you banana, a banana in a bowl and actually talk on uh, authentic manhood in Christ. So forgive me, ladies, but I, I do trust that something good will come of it. So I have several goals this morning. The first is to somehow justify a message to men on Mother's Day. I'm still working on that. The second goal is to not beat up men um, and to caution our women and our wives not to as well. I also want to say that quietness and being reserved and um, being slow to make decisions you know, physically and mentally disabled, those things do not determine manliness. Amen? Um, and so let's be clear of that. I think of the phrase that many of us have heard, beware of the fury of a quiet man. And uh, that's been true, I think, in many cases. My main two goals are to present a teaching from the scriptures that is helpful to men and helpful to women as well, and to boys, and maybe even to young girls as they evaluate what kind of a man do I want in my life. And then the other main purpose is to connect some dots uh, between this message on authentic manhood in Christ and last week's message on being a slave of Christ. And... Um, how those two might be connected. I think you can agree with me that men receive many conflicting messages about what it means. Get an amen on that from, um, you know, older notions like chivalry or being a Renaissance man, you know, a man who knows several languages and can build a castle and Love a woman really tenderly and well. That's a Renaissance man. Or we have messages like do your duty. Um, and the World War II generation, for example, came back and um, that, was the, that was the ethic of that time, do your duty. But over the last 30 years or so, maybe even longer, we know that Hollywood has been pushing this theme of follow your heart. Men, follow your heart, uh, and they've moved away from do your duty. Uh, Michael Medved, Bill, you know him, a famous uh, or quite well-known um, movie critic, Jewish man. His, one of his themes is that uh, Hollywood has moved from do your duty to follow your heart. Radical feminism or second-wave feminism uh, has has gone to the point of saying, I, we don't really feel men are very necessary at all, actually. And uh, 
obviously have gone way too far. Then you have Christian sources that have their messages as well. For example, Joyce Landorf, her book, Tough and Tender. Men are supposed to be tough and tender. Oh, yes, we like that. And then there's John Eldridge, who says that, like God, we're supposed to be wild at heart. And uh, we go through life asking ourselves as men, am I man enough? Am I man enough? And um, then you have James Dobson, who said that the, traditionally the man's role was to provide and protect. Those were his two duties. And often the mother would be the interpreter between the children and the, and the father. And she would interpret the children's behavior to the father and, and uh, the father's behavior to the children. And James Dobson says, that's really not good enough, men. You know, we need to engage with our children. And then you have Shanti Feldhahn, who you may remember she wrote the good news about marriage, and um, she's a Harvard researcher, a fine Christian woman. She said that men in their inner lives are battling insecurity all the time, insecurity in the form of inadequacy or incompetence or impotence, not feeling powerful. And... Uh, what I would say to Shanti is what many uh, people say to their preacher when he hits a theme that's a little too close to home. They say, now, preacher, you've gone to meddling. And that's kind of what I feel about Shanti saying we men fight insecurity. In some cultures, being a man is about sexual conquest, isn't it? Uh, in some cultures, to be a real man, you need to be married and have a woman on the side. In our culture today, we see some themes developing. For example, the alpha male is never supposed to apologize. We see that in our political candidates, don't we? Um, you know, you, you, you make a stupid statement, and instead of apologizing, you double down, is what, what the pundits say. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum is the old saying, if mama ain't happy, nobody ain't happy. And so we have men who, who um, don't make any waves with their spouses, with their wives, because, uh, oh my gosh, you don't want to make mama unhappy. And I think it's a little bit, I know here in the Midwest and in the South, you know, some husbands call their wives mama. To me, that's a little perverse. I, I just don't, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Um, so if that's you, please, please forgive me. Then Robert Bly, the author, wrote Iron John, right? Uh, how many of you have read that book, Iron John? And it's a book about manhood. This was the guy... If you've ever heard about men out in the woods dancing around drums and, and uh, shouting into the night, that was kind of Robert Bly's uh, deal. And he said this, he said, manhood is a descent into grief and unhappiness. Um, in other words, to find masculinity, you have to descend into grief. And... Um, 
That reminds me of Thoreau's famous statement, which was, most men live lives of quiet desperation. And then the bar gets even higher as many women in our culture hold the belief that men should instinctively know when to be tough and when to be tender with them. Any of you men uh, can relate to that. And then there's the prevailing cultural humor about men, which basically boils down to men are pretty stupid. You know, I remember reading the children's book series to my kids uh, when they were little called the Bernstein Bears. Do any of you current parents read that to your kids? And I remember reading that and just getting madder and madder because the, the, the dad bear is kind of this bumbling, stupid, uh, oafish bear who has toilet paper, you know, hanging off his back end. And the mother and the small bears are kind of winking at each other and laughing and, you know, at, at his foolishness. And the mother knows all and is the wise one. And the father's just kind of out there doing the best he can. And then there's Jeff Foxworthy, who has his redneck. He's made a living, really, on redneck humor. And most of it, I think, is aimed at men and how, how silly we are. In fact, for example, he says, uh, he, he points out how men think that they deserve incredible reward when they lift the smallest finger to do housework. And uh, he tells about a, a man, he says, his wife could be out repaving the driveway in a 100-degree heat, and he'll come out on the front porch, and he'll say, Honey, you don't need to worry about that ashtray. I done washed it for you. I'm going to go take a nap now. And he expects the band to play and the heavens to open and the Nobel Peace Prize to be in the mail. Well, what is authentic manhood in Christ anyway? Uh, James Thorpe called me a few months ago and asked me to speak at the men's retreat on the subject, Jesus the Real Man. Now, if you were asked to do that, what would you, what would you do? Jesus the Real Man. So I began to think, what is real manhood? And more importantly, what is authentic manhood in Christ? Dave, could you bring me that water? So I thought primarily of three scriptures. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Thank you. And uh, so on. Let's read these together. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. I love that verse. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I would say the second verse is the second one I thought of. When I was a child, I child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away things. And then the last one, this is a famous discipleship verse for those of us who have a long history at TCF. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This was Paul to Timothy. And in this verse, there's something about passing something on to other men. Now, of course, it's the gospel and the doctrines of the gospel, but there's this sense of passing on. And so, let me pose this question. If, if a young boy were to ask his Christian father, Dad, what does it mean to be a man? Would the Christian father be able to articulate a vision of manhood? Um, or would he maybe scratch his chin, maybe rub his belly, belch, Say, ah, oh, son, you'll figure it out. And then yell to his wife in the kitchen, baby, bring me some more hot uh, tater tots, would you? And don't hold back on the salt. The, <laughs> the truth is, most of us men have no clue how to explain what manhood might look like to our boys. And uh, much less have any kind of scriptural basis on which to make that explanation. So there's a pastor in Arkansas who took up this challenge. How, how do I explain to my boys what manhood is? And he went into the scriptures and he looked for scriptures that would help him figure this out. And uh, he came up, well, actually, I wanted to tell you, the book is called Raising a Modern Day Knight. And uh, his name is Robert Lewis, and he, he determined these four maxims, where'd it go, of manhood. So the first one that he came up with is reject passivity. Oh, this was, I don't know why it's doing this. Oh, look at that. That's too bad. Bill's been telling me I need to get a new computer. I thought, well, it won't mess up just with slides, but. So his, he had. He had four um, maxims. The first one is reject passivity. The second one is accept responsibility. The third one is lead courageously. And the fourth is expect a greater reward if you do those three. Isn't that good? Let's say it or I'll say it again. Reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and expect a greater reward. He compares Adam to Christ, or as Paul says in Romans 5.15, the first man, Adam, to the one man, Jesus Christ. Isn't that a neat contrast? The first man, Adam, to the one man, Jesus Christ. And he 
determines that in Genesis 2, 15 through 18, we see that Adam was given by God three roles. So let me read these verses to you. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the man said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Excuse me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So Lewis, in these verses, detects three roles for the man. He has a job to do, he has a will to obey, and he has a woman to love. His job, of course, is to tend the Garden of Eden. The will to obey is, of course, not to eat of the one tree. And the woman to love is, of course, Eve. But then in John excuse me, Genesis 3, 6, we see Adam's failure in all three areas. Let me read that verse to you. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then over in verse 23 and 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he was created to till the garden, but he ended up tilling the ground out of which he was taken. So he, God, drove the man out. So Lewis in this teaching makes a big deal of the fact that in Genesis 3.6, it it says that the man was with her. And let me read to you his his, uh, thinking in his own words. He says, the stage in Genesis 3, the serpent approaches Eve with a tantalizing proposition. He convinces her that the forbidden fruit is actually the path to life. Satan coaxes Eve with the promise that if she takes one bite, she will be like God. The stage is set for Adam to intervene. After all, Adam has been given the responsibility for the garden. The prohibition against eating fruit was spoken to him. You fully expect Adam to come running with a garden hoe, cut off the serpent's head, and end this heinous approach of evil. But confronted with his social and spiritual responsibilities, Adam becomes, of all things, passive. Have you ever wondered what Adam was doing while Eve was being propositioned? Most people assume that he was absent at the time, communing with nature or tilling the soil. He was not true. He was right there, Lewis writes watching his wife contemplate moral and spiritual suicide. Genesis 3.6 tells us so. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Did you hear it? The text says she gave to her husband with her. As naturally aggressive as Adam was when the moment of authentic manhood arrived, when he was called upon to act responsibly, take charge spiritually, and protect his woman, Adam just stood there. He went flat. He became passive. He refused to accept the social and spiritual responsibilities entrusted to him by God. Men have been imitating Adam's example ever since. Have you ever wondered why the Bible constantly calls men to love their wives, spiritually instruct their children, and responsibly lead their homes? The reason is because men have a fallen nature that actually bends away from these responsibilities. It comes with maleness. It comes from Adam. Just a little bit more. Yale sociologist Stephen B. Clark says flatly, men have a natural tendency to avoid social responsibility. Without a vibrant spiritual solution, this pattern of passivity grows effortlessly. It is now more and more prevalent and is breeding death to our culture. So you see his thinking there that Adam was with Eve the whole time. And again, he makes a big deal of that little word, with. I am not so sure. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know that you can uh, be certain of that. Uh, there's no, I didn't see anything in the Hebrew that suggested it one way or the other, whether he was with Eve the whole time or what, that was just sort of globally, a global in sense that Adam was with Eve, except at the last moment. But Lewis obviously believes Adam was with Eve the whole time and did not reject passivity. And I would say that that's certainly true, even if, even if Adam was only with her at the very end. He did go passive, didn't he? Instead of stand up for what he knew God wanted him to do. And then in verse 12, we read that he did not accept responsibility. When God asks Adam, where are you and why are you hiding from me? What does Adam say? He says, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. What's he doing there? Shifting blame, right? I mean, it's factually correct, but... He's not taking responsibility, is he? Um, that's what we men do. If, if there's a way to blame our wives, we do that. And even if there's not a way to do that, uh, you know, not a, not a good way to do that, we tend to do that. And, of course, the kids, they're great. You can blame anything on the kids. So he, didn't, he rejected passivity. He didn't accept responsibility or he did not reject passivity, he did not accept responsibility. And in verses 8 through 10, we see that he did not lead courageously either. Once he had sinned, what did he do? He went into hiding. The scriptures say that he was hiding and afraid. Now, before we go any farther, I want to make a, a caveat. I want to have everybody's attention. I want to say clearly that this is not biblical doctrine. 
um, in the sense that this is absolute truth that I'm presenting to you. I'm presenting a teaching of a pastor that I want to present sort of as a model. It's, it's what Chuck used to call a theological construct. It's a model that's taken from the Scripture rather than, than true doctrine because we really can't determine the meaning of that word with. But we do see, when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, that he did, in fact, reject passivity, didn't he? I think of uh, Philippians uh, 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was not passive. He humbled himself. He came to the world. He took initiative to come and die for our sins. He initiated. He also accepted responsibility, didn't he? I've thought about what Scripture really shows Jesus taking responsibility. There's so many, but I thought of when he inaugurated his ministry in Nazareth. And he uh, went to his synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of the whole synagogue were upon him. And what did he say? He said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was coming out, if you will, as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He didn't hide from it. He took responsibility. And then he led courageously, didn't he? I, what came to my mind was in the garden when he's sweating great drops of blood. And he says, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And then he did receive the greater reward. And he did look forward to the greater re- reward. In Hebrews 12, 2, we see... That as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is doctrine. This is truth. This is Jesus Christ uh, showing us these things. He rejected passivity. He He accepted responsibility, he led courageously, and he received the greater reward. So, let's go a little deeper now. So, this is the model of authentic manhood in Christ 
that Pastor Robert Lewis proposes. And I think he's done the body of Christ a real service. I think this is, these are maxims that men can pass on to their boys and can articulate that have some scriptural basis um, and really are the best I've heard. But we know that our focus is supposed to be on Jesus Christ himself. Amen? Rather than a code of behavior or what it means to be a man or a woman, that our focus needs to go beyond these things, beyond a code, beyond a principle, beyond a maxim, even if it's based on Scripture, to what Paul calls the one man, Jesus Christ, and obedience to him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So what I want to propose to you today is that our position is that if we have a radical focus on Jesus Christ and a radical focus on being obedient to him, that we will become authentic men of God. And we will become authentic women of God. So I want to look at four things that uh, if we take this better path, I'm calling it a better path, much like Bill last week called his message, A Better Freedom. I want to propose that this radical focus on Christ and being a slave of Christ is the right focus to subsume, if you will, these other things that we desire, to be an authentic man of God, to be an authentic woman of God. So that's number one, that if we focus on Jesus Christ, we will become authentic men and women of God. You know, I want you to think with me of our oldest, our oldest members in this congregation. Bring someone to mind, uh, one of the oldest members in our congregation, those that are very pious and seeking God. They're not worried about being an authentic man or an authentic woman, are they? What are they worried about? Or not worried, but what are they pursuing? They're pursuing obedience to Jesus Christ every moment of every day. Our, olders and brother, our older brothers and sisters are showing us the way, aren't they? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things that we're anxious about will be added unto you. Yes, as boys and, and young men, and even middle-aged men, we, we have insecurities about, am I the real deal? Am I, am I serving? Am I, am I a man? Am I a woman? I know Christian moms, after they've first maybe had their first baby, they are consumed with be, becoming a good mother. Am I, do I have what it takes to be a good mother for this child? And those are normal, normal steps of life and normal processes but let's keep our let's keep our eyes on Jesus amen and all these things will be added unto us a second reality is we find ourselves tested by adversity but found victorious hallelujah tested by adversity but found reliable found tested 
James 1, 2 through 4, we were looking at that the last time I preached. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Third, we find ourselves truly, truly free. John 8, 31 and 32 If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's an author named Michael Kelly. He's a Catholic man, and he was writing about freedom. What is freedom? And he said this, at this moment in history... It is not freedom, but gratification that seems to be the master of most people's hearts, minds, bodies, and souls. We find ourselves enslaved and imprisoned by a thousand different whims, cravings, addictions, and attachments. We have subscribed to the adolescent notion of freedom, which is the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, whatever you want, without interference from any authority. Could the insanity of our modern philosophy be any more apparent? So that that idea of absolute freedom from restraint is an adolescent notion of freedom, he says. Then he goes on to say, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom is the strength of character to do what is good, true, noble and right. Isn't that good? And then he goes on to say something we probably wouldn't agree with. Freedom is the ability to choose and celebrate the best version of yourself in every moment. I think we would change that to freedom is the ability to choose and celebrate following Jesus with joy in every moment. That would be what we would say. Following Jesus with joy in every moment. I've so appreciated uh, Bill Sullivan's work this year in his preaching. I don't know if you are aware, but uh, especially the Thursday night, Monday Thursday service, if you weren't here, Bill taught on a subject, free to be nothing. And he talked about John 13, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And I was in his office earlier that week, and he told me that's what he was going to preach on. And I thought, he, he, said, um, he said, if a man knows who he truly is, he's free to be nothing. And I thought, that is the most profound thing I've heard in years. Uh, that if you really know who you are, you're free to be nothing or free to be a slave free to really love. So, and then last week on being a slave for Christ, freedom to truly love and freedom from the fear of man. Freedom from the fear of man. How many of you struggle with the fear of man? I know I do. And yet, Paul said, if I were still trying to please men... I would not be a bondservant of Christ. 
And I love Proverbs 28, verse 1. Anybody know what that says? The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Isn't that a great verse? Oh, may we live that verse. And then we experience a greater reward. We experience, I think, in this life, profound joy. You know, uh, when Bill was talking of being a slave of Christ, uh, we, we need to remember that being a slave of Christ, though there are difficulties, there is also great joy. There is great joy in being a servant and a slave of Christ. We equate slavery with, with uh, bondage and beatings and hardship. And sure, there's hardship, but there's also a New Testament record of great, great joy. Uh, I want to look at 1 Peter 1, verse 8. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Paul says this, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How many of you have that joy? How many of you have that joy? Don't be bashful. Who has that joy? That joy in being devoted to and obedient to Jesus Christ. One emotion that I've just started to experience as I enter my 60s is a really different and beautiful emotion to me. I'm not even sure it's an emotion, but it's, it's the sense that I, I, I don't have anything I have to prove anymore. You know? And it's so beautiful uh, to spend your whole life striving to prove you have something to contribute. And then as you get to some point, you, you, you realize, I don't have to prove anything anymore. I just have to follow Jesus and live for him and be obedient to him. Well, i got to wrap this up. You know, we're all one in Jesus Christ, aren't we? Neither male nor female, slave or free, we're all one in Jesus Christ. And so, I know that both men and women, we really have the same task, in a sense. And that is to decide, when we pass from this life, what voice do we want to hear? I'll, I'll, I'll use the example of men, just because it's easier for me. But... When we pass from this life, do we want to hear the voice of women saying, now that was a man? That would be nice, but... Or do we want to hear the voice of men saying, he was a man? Do we want to hear the voice of our community saying, he was a good man who left a great legacy? 
Maybe we want to hear the voice of our church saying, he was a man of God. He was a fine leader. But I want to propose that we live and die instead for the voice of our master saying, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter in to the joy of your master. May every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in this fellowship live and die for that voice. That voice that says, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter in to the joy of your master. Amen.